Hey gang, welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast, the show that brings you the men and women of track and field and explores their unique stories. The show is brought to you by Gill Athletics. Head on over to gillathletics.com to find all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill, and this episode, our guest is the Athletics LLC. We've got episode 16 on tap for you. This was done on YouTube back on July 24th. All the Athletics LLC episodes can be found on YouTube. They publish every Friday. You got to catch them. They are just a, a lot of fun in person. We get the honor of rebroadcasting the audio to provide value for you. So we hope you enjoy this episode. Can we get with this or that featuring long jumper, sprinter, Olympian extraordinaire, Tiana Barletta. So without further ado, please help me welcome the wise, the wonderful Athletics LLC, episode 16. everyone. Welcome, welcome to another fun week of Athletics LLC. Uh, this week we've got a great, great guest. I'm super excited, so everyone else cannot be excited because I'm excited for everyone. Um, but as always, we are joined with Amar Ironic, Lucius. Good evening, everyone. Clyde. The first Ties for Clyde has come through. Special intro. They wanted to remain anonymous. I appreciate it. Oh, that's awesome. Shout out. Loki oh. shout out. I love it. And last but definitely not least, my favorite person in the world. It should be everybody else's as well. Miss <laughs> um, Tiana B. Tiana Barnelena, how are you today? I'm well. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being on the show. Big fan. <laughs> so, um, I mean, we all know who you are, and if anybody else doesn't know who you are, I, I'm stoked for you. But tell us who you are. Tell us, tell us why we all love you. That I cannot answer, but I can tell you <laughs> that uh, I'm a professional, professional track and field athlete, specialized in the 100 and the long jump. I have three gold medals: uh, one in the long, two in the one, and four by record and three champions as well. Super exciting. So uh, I'm just going to say it out loud. Mar Ironic, you are not the most decorated athlete on this panel this week. I am not. And I'm <laughs> actually very proud of that. But, but she is my spirit animal and we've discussed this, she and I. Love yes, that. and Lamar connected. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go ahead and <laughs> jump in the deep end. Here we go. Um, what do we think are the three most important storylines, starting now through the Olympics, not related to COVID? So, Miss Tiana, let's start with you first. What, you, know, you having the hottest seat in the, in the house right now, you know, what are the three most glaring storylines? With the absence of Christian Coleman because of a suspension who is going to 
fill that spot on the sprint court. Um, who are the female sprinters? Because it is at the same time but wide open. It's an interesting paradox to watch the sprinters. And what happens to these contracts? <laughs> in uh, that in this in the year pandemic, what moving forward and preparing for an Olympic year, World Championship year, the pullback? Got it, gentlemen. Chime in. What do you think are the three leading into? I'll I'll take that. I'll jump in that one. Um, for me. And basically, a lot of what Tiana said, I would agree with the men's and women's 100 meters is usually one of the most exciting storylines anyway. And then given the, the context of who won't be around on the men's side and who could be around on the women's side, both from an American perspective and otherwise, I think that that's a, an incredible storyline. But honestly, there's no way I could answer this question without addressing the elephant in the room. I think the most compelling storyline about the 2021 Olympics is the American election for president. Because I got to tell you, if Donald Trump is still in office, I don't think the Americans will have an Olympic trials. And I'm just going to say that. I, the way the pandemic is going, the American election will dictate whether or not we can have an Olympic trials. And that, an, an Olympics without the American team is a mess. Um, so I'm going to say that I think the biggest storyline is whether we'll have the Olympics at all, mm -hmm. um, because of, uh, the thing we're not supposed to talk about. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, I think that the biggest issue for me is, um, how do we ever put the world all in one place? <laughs> and so I think that at some point in time, there's going to be some alternative thoughts and ideas and views on how we have an Olympics maybe on at different sites, different continents, different places for different uh, disciplines and that kind of thing. Um, I think the selection itself, I, I, I'm not going to say the presidential race will determine whether we have a trials, but I do think that it could well determine whether we send a team to the games themselves. Um, I, I would think that would be a bigger issue. I think that for me, when it comes to the team selection, I, I think there's some interesting storylines developing because of certain things that have happened with people running times and stuff like that during this, you know, I'm gonna call that a, a rest and recovery period for most. And so I think that as we move forward, the interesting storyline for me will be how people manage coming out of wherever this ends now and wherever we're charged with being a year from now to get ready to prepare for whatever Olympics we may or may not have. So those will be my storylines. Well, uh, definitely, Lucius took one of my storylines. Um, I think that's probably the biggest storyline is the ambiguity as to whether we are actually going to have the Olympics. Um, but I think within the, the confines of, of the sport, I think it'll be very interesting to see um, if the hurdles will get a chance to actually outshine the flat sprints, um, because I think the storylines are better, and I think it's a forced fit to make the sprint storylines better than the hurdle hurdles. But 
we all know that, we, especially American TV, we do a lot of forced fits. So it'll be interesting to me to see if that happens. Um, and probably a little bit more of an obscure note, um, I think it's very interesting that, that Kevin Meyer, the world record holder in the decathlon, has changed coaches. Um, and I think that's going to be incredibly interesting to see how that goes. I mean, you'd be the first one to score 9,100 and you change coaches. Um, uh, and then I, I think number three is, I, look, I hate to be messy, but I kind of have to be. I'm very interested to see who we put on the track for the women's four by one. Just, I got to kind of be messy. I'm just saying to me, that is an incredibly interesting pot because I find myself to be relatively knowledgeable about the sport. And I, I would say for me, the, the relay pool is about 15 people. And I, and I got my money on one specifically. Other than that, everybody else is kind of like, ah, I don't know. Well, what, my question is, why is that a mess? Why is that being messy? That's what I just you want to see. What you want to see? Yeah, I just didn't want it to be perceived as such. Like, look, at yeah, the end that's nothing messy about that. I mean, I think everybody wants to see who's going to be on the track for all the rules. Yeah, mess about that because there's never anything concrete about that process, even though it's supposed to be concrete. It's never is so. So I think that is, that, you, you know, that is a that's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate uh, question and one that will be raised a lot of times between now and the time the gun goes off, wherever we, wherever we end up. So. Yeah. I mean, and obviously, I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit, right? I, I think we all, there's a lot of ambiguity about whether Christian's going to be there or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, and, I, and I'll address the elephant or not elephant in the room because everybody on the planet now wants Michael Norman on the show about one. Um, I, I would like to say that some of us were calling for Michael Norman to be a part of the men's four by one long before he went to Texas and dropped the nine eight. Just want to put that out there. <laughs> yeah. I, here's what I'll say. Some of you were. <laughs> you yeah, I'm, I'm, and I wasn't. I wasn't against him. I'm not saying I was, but you I were a big proponent of that for a long time. Yeah. I think anybody who saw Michael Michael Norman run lead off in high school probably was on that that bandwagon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only problem now is that you watch what Coleman did last year on meetup, so now you got some chance. Now you got some decisions to make. If both of them are eligible for the relay, then you got some decisions to make as to where you, who you run with. So I, I don't think you got any decisions to make at all. <laughs> of course you don't, but there's decisions to be made. Trust me, there. <laughs> I mean, I, I obviously hold on a second. Hold on a second. You've been on an Olympic team. Don't start this week. Don't don't do that. Not today. <laughs> you know, there's going to be decisions that have to be made and. They will be made at some point in time, but you know there's a decision to be made. So stop. Yeah, I mean, you're right. <laughs> and Michael Norman's going to have to run on some relay somewhere on leadoff to prove that he can do it, which is a joke. But sure. Well, Miss Miss Greatest of All Time Popoff, what do you think about all of this? I was just about to say, we're talking about Team USA relays. The decisions, the questions will be asked and the decision will be delayed all the way up until maybe 30 minutes before the call room time. I mean, this is the way our system works. I mean, the relay camps, we don't even know who's on A and B until the day before or the night before. So it's not like it's never going to be clear. So for Lamar, who has been on an Olympic team, to say the decision is clear, that's some BS. I got to call BS on that because – Thank I, you so much, Tia. Thank camp, you so much. Because – 
Clyde and I usually have to call BS on him, so we're glad that you're doing that. That that you know what that's fair, and I can take that from her. Oh, Jen, oh, you could take it from Clyde now, but you could take it from me. <laughs> this is usually how my world works, anyway. It's all right. Exactly. Because because guess at the end of the day, you know that was BS when it came out of your mouth, so I don't know why you said. It. Sure, that's true. <laughs> Look, for every two cents that they've got on this show, we can end end the change shortage. That's how we're rolling today. Exactly. <laughs> Um, okay, let's dive into the next question. Um, would track and field be better or worse off if we had one site for world championships, one permanent site, I'm sorry, let me make that clear, and one permanent site for the Olympics? <laughs> I, I, I'm not even, I don't know why that's even a thought. And I, and I know my man Clyde loves a cathedral, okay? And it, it's a nice facility. Wait a minute, don't. No, 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 let me finish, let me finish. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm just saying I know you love the cathedral, but I don't even think you think that the world's Olympics should be there. Um, there's something magical about going someplace every four years. There's something magical about, you know, the travel, the, the culture, the things that you can learn. I, no, it's just, that's just, that's, that's a horrible thought. I, I mean, whoever, whoever's putting that idea out there, find them lock them away for a while, and maybe they'll figure it out. But no, that's just a terrible no. I agree with Lucius. There's a certain level of pageantry that comes with making a team. And it is drastically different when you know you have to stay home. For me, because the Portland World Championships is happening on home court, and I've been doing this at that point for 17 years, that is a different thing than if it were my first World Championship team and I get to take Southwest airline to the world. <laughs> that is a very different experience and so it is very important to be able to move around the world i would be completely uninterested i would go right to medical school if i knew that every every <laughs> world championship every olympic would be eugene or and i and it's beautiful but that doesn't excite me i'd rather transcript DNA than that every two and four years Uh, I'll, I'll jump in there. I'll just say this. Well, first off, that was one of the greatest subtle flexes I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm smart enough to go to med school just in case you miss it. That. But I, I digress. Um, that's why she's my spirit animal. Um, I firmly believe that, that, that track and field would be way worse if we always went to the same places. Um, not like not even bad. I think it would be way worse. And um, for one, for for a lot of reasons. But I think part of the pride of being a uh, you know a silver fox in in the track and field world is you get to talk about all the places that you've been. You know, you you get to share. Like I mean, I I've been involved in in passport stamp contests. Yep. You know, like and and that's kind of dope. You know, like. I've actually been to more countries than I have states, which I'm very proud of. And so, you know, I appreciate why the question was asked. You know, it's a thought, but at least from my perspective, I think one of the greatest parts of being a professional track athlete is the number of places you get to go. Mm -hmm. um, I do not disagree with anything that has been said and I do not understand anyone who would even consider that 
world championships should be at the same place every time or Olympics should be at the same place every time. I've never been on that page. Having said that, some arguments on this topic that I think are related that I have thought were interesting and, and possibly a good idea. I don't think that the Olympics should be given to third world countries. Sorry, I just don't. I don't think that that's a good idea. I think the chaos that it creates both in the lead up and the aftermath are not worth what it cost those countries to put it on. So if an idea came to pass that the Olympics should be on a three or four location rotation, I could get with that. And for me, Eugene, Oregon is no place to host an Olympics. World Championship, track me, absolutely. Olympics, God no. If it's gonna be in America, I would say give it to LA. If it's, I would, I would have no problem with LA, London, somewhere else in Europe, maybe a Paris and Tokyo on a 16 year rotation. I got no problem with that. But you know, the Brazil thing, you know, not from all, from all accounts I heard, you know, it wasn't awesome. And so, you know, I, I think places like, you know, places like London, places like Los Angeles, even, you know, Atlanta, uh, Barcelona, places that have done it well and that are not in third world countries, I think, you know, you know, we could do something like that. World championships should continue to operate as they operate because world championships is just a, an athletics thing. It's just a track and field thing. So do your bids, give it to who you give it to. I wish there was less corruption in that process. But even, even the worry that everybody had about Doha, at the end of the day, Doha was pulled off brilliantly. And it looked amazing and the performances were spectacular. So, you know, how they got it, I don't know. But, you know, it went off well. So that, that's as far as I would take it. As far as permanent locations, absolutely not. Yeah, I think the, the whole third world thing, I mean, it was, I understand the, the thought behind giving them a chance. Gave them a chance, fail. Okay? And it just like, I'm good. Let's move on. Um, trial, error, move on. We're, we're, we're good. And, and I, I agree that it needs to be given to places. I mean, we need the pageantry. We need the professionalism. We need the clarity of where, you sh where things are and how to get to them. It needs to be seamless. It's the Olympic Games. It's the pinnacle of all the sports. So let's not take it and, and cheapen it by giving it to someone who can't handle the experience. So I think that that's very important. What, what Clyde said. I also, Clyde, but uh, largely in part because the IOC is about the social responsibility, uh, so they say. And so to award the, the game to a venue like Rio um, and burden them with the financial impact that happens with having a whole country that spent, what, billions of dollars for facilities they cannot use, cannot maintain and the village where people, people before afterwards is irresponsible and actually counter to the very things they stand for. So I agree beyond rotation with countries that can handle it, who have a plan for sustainability, like London did that really well. But yeah, going, my heart was breaking. In the bus ride from the airport in Rio, to the village with the amount of poverty that I was seeing, I was like, how in the world did they win this bid? Like, we should not be here burdened. 
Yeah, it, it was awful. I mean, like you, you were riding along and you could like literally see straight through people's houses. Like they had no interior walls. Like it was just like you saw the front, of, like there was a structure, you looked right through it. And that was their home on the side of a hill. It was, it was awful. It was awful. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that Australia should be in that rotation. I mean, obviously, I have I have an affinity for that place, but I would also say that they've they've had the games. I think I think Australia's had the games three times, and they've done a great job with them all three. Um, but yeah, to to the Rio point, look, I think that Tiana Tiana's point is probably the most poignant one. Winning the Olympic bid seems like a great idea until you look at what the bills are that you get left with, and burdening an already struggling country and continent for for the most part with you know billion dollars billions of dollars in debt it's just insane right and and they don't have the infrastructure to repurpose things like australia i mean where we stayed for our for our village all of those homes were sold prior to us ever being in them right like it was already repurposed before we ever got there and so, like, that's the kind of infrastructure, um, and, you know, that's necessary to take on the Olympics. And it can't be everywhere. But there are certainly a lot of places on this planet that it can be and can be done very well and safely and, and not be economically burdensome. I, I, need, I need to start practicing like my colleagues and taking notes because, Lamar, that was, that was my fourth. It was L.A., London, Sydney, and then somewhere else in Europe. I couldn't really decipher between a Paris versus somewhere else, but yeah, LA, London, Sydney. See, here's the key with the notes thing, Clyde. You're not old enough to have to take notes. I am. Okay. See, see, I, I, I'm smart enough to know that 10 minutes from now, I might have forgot that. So I better write it. Down. <laughs> I love it. Um, so before we let you go, Tiana, um, I wanted to highlight two things that you're involved with directly right now. Uh, first thing, I wrote a Great Awareness Month, as well as your involvement with Athletes Association. So can you just give us a quick synopsis, your involvement with and what those two events or those two entities are standing for? Yeah, so July is Fibroid Awareness Month. And for people not aware, that's the thing that nearly killed me and that I've been um, suffering with largely unaware for the last two years. It caused severe anemia. It caused me to hemorrhage. And although the tumor is actually benign, like I said, it could kill you. And once I learned about it, um, I got connected with the Fibroid Foundation. And so it's just a good time for women, female athletes, people who coach female athletes, people who love race, parent, whatever. You have a female athlete, 70% of all women have this condition. A lot of them are asymptomatic, but they ha their uteruses have these tumors. And so it's really important that we all just know about this because maybe somebody listening who coaches someone always get ahead of that and not almost die like I did. So that's really important. And this is one you'll just hear me blasting about and talking about that. Um, the Athletics Association is an attempt at unionizing track and field athletes, professional athletes. It started with us needing to define what it even means to be a professional athlete, but it largely was created through World Athletics, making a lot of unilateral decisions that were not made with the athlete's interest in mind. 
And because they were largely able to say, you know, well, we discussed it with the athletics commission um, and there's only a few athletes there. We formed this coalition to show, bring them receipts about what the athletes so-called, um, you know, talking to and um, I don't know, I don't even know the word right now. I can't get it. But the what the athletes that they are talking with to create this legislation it's not us. And so that's why the Athletes Association exists, so that we can bring to the table this information. Eventually, it will evolve into having elected positions within the world athletics. But for now, it's like just unionizing the voice because track and field athletes have a very difficult time because it's very much every man for his or herself out here. Definitely. And, you know, if you don't follow Tiana already on social media, you'll see highlights of both entities and, and what's going on right now, specifically in the month of July for Fiber Awareness. Um, you know, it's great, you know, having clicked on the Athletes Association and see who's on the board and who's being involved. I'd love to see the international piece of it and just the collaboration of everybody. So, you know, definitely it's something that's been long awaited. And I know Lamar has had many conversations about like the need of this and it's like 30 years past need. So, um, all the best to you guys doing that, and, you know, we love that you're still around and you're healthy, as healthy as can be right now, and we wish you all the best in your training in the next year, and we know that Clyde's going to do everything in his power to make sure that you're bigger, stronger, better, faster, and longer, and long jump for that to happen. So, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Love it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Got it. Wow, that was awesome. That was awesome. Um, so, gentlemen, I'm going to throw some more questions at you to see if we can get a little more conversation stimulated. Um, not that that's too hard of a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are <coughs> um, some of our philosophical differences in between or between the science of coaching and just the fields of coaching? You know, how do we feel in regards to one versus the other? Is there a one versus the other? Is there not? Where do we stand on that philosophical? Let the man with the notes run with <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, gentlemen. I've been waiting. I want, I, I want to learn, so I'm listening. <laughs> I'm, here, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the, for the comments on this one. Well, with your brand new bow tie, I think you should, you should start us off. I got no problem with that. Um, for me, I think like most things in this world, the truth is in the middle. Um, I don't, I absolutely do not uh, agree with anyone who says that science is not a part of what we do in the coaching profession. I think that is patently ridiculous. Uh, our, our, all elements of, of what we do for living in, in the world of athletics, whether you're a sprinter, jumper, thrower, hurdler, is guided by physics and physics is fundamental and physics doesn't really care about about the feel uh, or your or the thought process of how you get there so science is fundamental to what we do however i've said my entire life in coaching i've said i've said it on top of stages i've put it in every presentation i've ever given on any coaching subject that coaching is art and the science is only useful if it makes the coach a better artist. That's not my quote. That comes from a, 
a man called uh, named Bill Swedenham, I believe is how you say his name. And so for me, I've always tried in my profession to marriage the science behind what we do for a living with the artistic skills that I have as a coach. And everything that I do is guided by science, but there is a huge feel aspect to what I do. And I am a person who will change a program in an instant if I see something, if I, if I, if I wrote a, a training for today, if me and Tiana go to the track later and she's in the middle of her warm-up, and, and I know what I have prescribed on the day and I don't like the way the warm-up looks, I don't like the way it, it's playing out, I'll shut it down, throw it out and, and come up with something new because I have to. I think that coaches that are too scared to use their feel for their for what they do and just stick to numbers and, and, and charts and science end up getting a lot of people hurt. Um, and so I think the best people in our profession are our marriage between the science and the field. Um, I, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to dispel this rumor that Mike Holloway is totally against science because that's the biggest bunch of BS on the, on the planet. I am not totally against science. I am not a guy that doesn't believe in science and I'm, you know, I'm not that dumb. So I'm just going to put that out there. But what I'm going to tell you is, you know, you'll, uh, Clyde, you use an interesting word. You use the word prescribe. And I think that the problem that I have with the science or some of the scientists is that they want to use science to prescribe. And that's not what science is for, in my opinion. The science is to describe. And then the coaching, the art of coaching is what should be used to prescribe. So when the scientist tries to tell me how to fix something, and the scientist has never fixed it, I tune out. So then I become a guy that doesn't believe in science. No, I just don't believe that a scientist who has never had fixed such said problems can tell me how to fix that problem. Um, I also have an issue with the scientist that wants to paint everybody into a single box. You know, we can't, um, for, for, for the, the best example ever is, I'll go back to Ben Johnson, you know? Ben Johnson starts jumping out of the blocks like a crazy man and everybody tries to do it. You know, then along comes Michael Johnson and everybody's gotta run like Michael Johnson and everybody's gotta run like Usain Bolt. Well, everybody doesn't have their skill set. So I think the, for me, the key is, is that using the, the signs to better the person, to better the athlete. You cannot take the, the science of one athlete and apply it to everyone across the board. That's my problem with the scientists out there because they want to make everybody look the same. And I'm going to say it, I've said it privately, and I will now say it publicly. I think that science has ruined some of our better athletes because that the science that people are trying to teach these athletes are, you know, they're asking them to do something their bodies aren't capable of doing. Um, I think there's a, a couple of events in this country that were stagnant for a while. I, I felt like, I still feel this way. There was a time where the 400 was the best event in this country and in the world, as far as being deep. And the more science people apply to the 400, the worse we've got. Pay attention to it. That, that, that's, actually, that's actually really interesting um, because, and I've, I've never heard anybody articulate it that way. So my response to that is literally off the top of my head instinctual. 
to me, the longer the event gets, the less science it's going to be affiliated with it because there's so many places for error. There's so many different things that can go wrong. If, if a stride length issue is crucial to the 100 meter dash, I totally understand that. And it's easy enough to, to put that in the mix and, and plan it out in a certain way. But holding a, a certain stride length, uh, dysphoria all the way around 400 meters is a lot different. And I, I get the general condition of it. I get the prescription of it. I get that you can put it into a computer model and, and, and tell you what the computer says, but there's a lot more nuance going on and a lot more uh, things that honestly science hasn't figured out yet. And well, see, and I'm gonna tell you this, there is no, there's nothing to figure out. Because, because, okay, here's the problem that I have with the science. You've got an athlete that's 6'4", and you got another one that's 5'9", on a good day. Right. So the 5'9 athlete is asked to run down the back stretch of a 400 meters the way the 6'4 guy did. Well, that's not, you, you can't just ruined the guy. So that's my point, okay? Like you can't, that, that's not right. Like you can't look at what, you know, like say LaShawn Merritt does, and ask the guy that's much shorter than him to do the same thing. You know, like all of a sudden, now everybody's supposed to do what Wade did down the backstretch. No, because he's Wade. And that's, and that's my problem with the science of it. See, the science for me is figuring out, okay, my best quarter model right now is a 45-2 guy. And I have to find what's gonna help me make him become a 45 low, low guy based on what his abilities are, not by going and find out what Wade does or how Wade does, because he's not Wade. Okay? That's right. Well, and we, and when all, you talk about even when you talk about the hundred, the two hundred, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about the hurdles. The worst thing anybody can do is try to mimic what Aries Merritt does, because you can't do it. That's right. Go, go ahead, put your hand above your head like that, okay, <laughs> and then try to do what you do with his feet, and you know what you do? You're gonna break it. Because but, that's what Aries does. But but see, to me, that, and that goes back to I don't know, our 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 entire sport from athletes to coaches to parents, like everybody wants to find the shortcut, right? And so when you see something, when you see something that looks different than you've ever seen it before, a lot of people, a lot of unintelligent people, in my opinion, say, "Ooh, I've never seen that before. There must be something to that. We need to figure that out." I mean, that's how the whole seven-step thing blew up. That's how Aries arm thing blew up. I mean, Annie Harrison and her body structure is totally different than, than, a, than a girl who's trying to be 5'10", 5'9", doing the hurdles. Like, there's nuance here. And I've always said, coach your athlete, not the event. If you try to coach the event, you're going to get yourself into patterns that don't match the kid, and then you have problems. I think every kid, every athlete is a, is a puzzle to be solved on which themselves. And my job is to figure out how their puzzle pieces need to fit. And it's not going to be the same for everybody. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that for me, the way I use the science is to put them in the right positions to succeed. You know, like I've, I have certain parameters that I use that I think need to happen, and I need to apply that to said athlete, not to said event. And that's where I and the scientists disagree because some of the scientists out there want everybody to look the absolute same and it's just not possible. So that is my issue with 
the science. Um, and I think for me, the feel, the art of coaching is, uh, is more important because as you said, you could have something prescribed, but you can look at your athlete and tell it needs to be changed. That's the important part because if you lean too heavily on the total science of it, then you're trying to get them to do something that they might not be able to do. And you have to, um, Tony Wells, uh, you know, the great club coach out of uh, Colorado with the Flyers, used to say this all the time. You have to have great mother wit. Now, unless you're old, you don't know what that means. It's just basically you got to have good instincts. That's all it means. Sometimes you have to just trust your freaking gut. Uh, I, I'm going to pose uh, this question to my two colleagues here in this realm. I believe that a lot of coaches are horrifically insecure. And therefore, when they are insecure, they lean on what the paper says. They lean on what the book says. They lean on what the computer says because they don't have enough confidence in their ability to be artistic. And so I think the science, a lot of the people that are pure science driven are doing so because of a, an insecurity. They, they're not comfortable stepping outside that box. That, that's my theory on it. Ironic? So, have at it. <laughs> well, I mean, that might be the most perfect alley-oop possible thrown to me. Yes, um, <laughs> that's why I said that was all yours. <laughs> I, I, I look at it like this. Uh, the scientists and, and, and the feel artist are both in the same car, but the feel artist is driving and is the only person ever allowed to drive. Um, and the scientist is not allowed to speak until the field artist asks the scientist a specific question. Because at the end of the day, science has limitations, human beings do not. Um, you know, the, it, there's a, a very old story that, that happened with, at, you know, the, the, the clinic that you guys go to at, at the end of the year with all the sprinters and hurdlers and they had a, a stick figure running a, a, a 400 hurdle pattern that was perfect. And they had Angelo uh, at the time, who was the best hurdler, 400 hurdler in the world. And he was running. And uh, at the end, Angelo crossed the line slightly ahead of the stick figure. And everybody sat quiet for a second. And someone raised their hand and asked Ralph, um, how was it that Angelo was able to beat the stick figure? And Ralph whimsically quick, clicked, I mean, quipped that, uh, obviously the stick figure was tired and Angela was not. And, and at the end of the day, that's the truth is that, um, someone said this to me two days ago, that today's standards are tomorrow's mediocrity. Therein lies the limitations of science because science is only based off of the best thing that man has produced currently. That is phenomenal. And like, if, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to delve too far into science, then I take away my biggest attribute, mm -hmm. which is my ability to change on the fly. Mm -hmm. Like my ability to hear things, my ability to see things. Um, it's just, it's just something that God, that's a, a blessing I have. And if I go too much on the science of it, then it takes away my biggest attributes, my biggest strengths. Okay. And like, you know, somebody walks up to me and says, well, you know, grants to, da, da, da. I'm like, I know that. 
I just need more time to fix it. I don't need the number. I, my eyes can see, I can hear it. But if I just, if I start worrying so much about numbers, like I said, the worst thing I can do is get Grant, try to get Grant to look like any other hurdler. I have to go to Grant's strengths and I have to make them better and I have to go to his weaknesses and make them his strengths. And that's the only way it's going to work. But, but, that's, but that's why I, I just want to, to finish my point. Just That's why it always amazes me the people that try to be science first feel, if any, second because i just i think to myself like we're not playing a we're not playing a video game right there's not a there's not a sequence of moves that you put together that's going to produce this thing but like at the end of the day like branch trying to run 1260 something no human being has ever done that so there is no science or blueprint for it right I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember when Ben Johnson ran 979, basically everybody thought that Ben and Charlie had ruined the sport and no one, nobody could ever run that fast clean. And now we all will accept anyone running 978 without any question because we all know that it is humanly possible because it's been done so many times since. So at the end of the day, like, it has to be a feel first and it has to be a feel dominant situation to produce greatness because you have to be several carrots ahead of the mule if you're the coach right so if you have someone who who can run 12 20 in the women's hurdles right you can't wait for the science to tell you how how she runs 12 10 because you've seen 12 10 movements in training Right? She didn't run a perfect race to run 1220. There were mistakes made. So that means for sure you've already seen with your eyes 1210, 120 rhythms, maybe for only four steps, maybe for only two hurdle segments. But whatever it is, you've already seen it. And you have to be skilled enough to be able to say, as an artist, wait, that was it. Look different, sound different. It may even smell different, but at the end of the day, the skill and the artistry is to be able to recognize that. Say to the athlete immediately, did you feel that? If so, heaven, you know, good for you. If it was felt, then the question is, can you replicate it? How do I get you to replicate it for more times and, and, and more segments? But the science is only going to tell you what you got, totally. The science is only going to give you what you got, but the science doesn't see what you saw. And so, you know, you said it earlier, Clyde, and I just, I wanna just kind of hammer this point home. I think those that rely on science Simply put, they, like they're screaming as to how good or how, how, what the level of coaching that they can be. Because if you are only locked into the limitations of the science, you can only coach athletes within those parameters. Yes. And, and that's, that's my point as well. And that's, that you paint yourself into a box. And that's why very few people in this world who are coaches are equipped to handle the true unicorns that come along every so often there ain't a lot of them but when they come along if you're not in the right hands 
as an athlete, they ultimately will be ruined, if not stagnant, stagnated. But I, and, and I will say, I, I think we, I think I would be me personally, I'd be remiss not to point this out because uh, the, the rooms that Lamar made reference to, um, I've sat in those rooms as we all have. And one of the most, one of the best parts of the experiences of coming out to Las Vegas and sitting in front of Ralph Mann and the high performance team who do a phenomenal job at what they do. They are phenomenal at what they do. The best part of that experience for me is to sit in there and do it myself and watch the other coaches argue back and forth with the scientists over what the prescription could be and what the solution is. Because it, it, it happens every single year. It's like, this is where we need to get to, but it's your guys' job to figure it out. And that's cool. I, I enjoy that exchange. I, I have sat there and argued with the, the, the prescribed ideology we've gone back home and, and put something on film and, see, and sent it in and be like, bro, I told you, you can't do it this way. It's not going to work. So I enjoy that relationship. I, I am honored to have an invitation to those rooms and the exclusive club of people that get to sit in those rooms and have those debates, I, I think is the cool, one of the coolest parts about my job and my career. But the, the HP team do a phenomenal job and, and I think their work is invaluable. I just think that the better coaches know that you take the you take that information that's thrown back at you and you go learn how to paint better. You go learn how to play jazz. Like that's the, the best coaches are the ones that know how to do that. And I and I will I'm not as high on the high performance team as you are because I haven't dealt with them as much. Um I like I said I have an ability to figure things out pretty well on my own. Um and my issue is again if the scientist wants to describe something to me, I'm fine with that. But the job that I have with the high performance team is they wanted to then prescribe how to fix it and they don't know how in my opinion because they never have. And it's like my man Ironic said today is, you know, they can tell you, okay, you did, this is, they can show you the numbers of what Kevin Young did to run 46-78, but they don't know because those are just numbers. If you want to know what Kevin did, you better talk to John and you better talk to Kevin. Because that's where the true science, that's where the true feel comes in for me. The art of coaching, the art of the athlete receiving the information. So again, again, not saying I've got something against Ralph Mann, the high performance team. They have a job. I think they do a very good job. I just think that some people just lean on them too heavily. Because they think that's, it's just like the the coach is always calling and asking for the workout, right? You know, they, they, they were, there, was a, there was a post recently where a guy was talking about, and he had an athlete that was running a certain time and wanted to run another time, and then he said to that said athlete, then run that time. No, no. Because the science says you haven't run that time, so you can't train that. No. And that's my problem with science because it puts walls up. It puts self-imposed ceilings up. And it, it paints you into this box or to this circle and tells you you can't do better than this. And then if you want to tell me that this can be done, then I need you to be able to tell me how I can do it or the information is useless to me. Because like you go to the doctor and he tells you he has a cold, but he has no prescription for it. But what the hell uses he do? Not a very good doctor. You can't, you can't cure the common cold. 
as Dr. Kusaki. That's who that is. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let, let's stir the pot a little bit more. Um, yeah, here we're we stirring go. the pot. We're stirring the pot. We've got the good, the bad, the ugly effects that the pandemic has had on the NCAA as a whole. Oh dear. Yes. Uh, I haven't gone first. I've been gone first yet, so I guess I'm willing. So I know Clyde is definitely can't wait to get his hands on this one. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm not sure where to start with this one, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I do think that it has exposed some leadership issues, in my opinion, from within the NCAA and even some of the conference levels. Um, I think that uh, the NCAA is kind of being run like our country is being run right now. And that, uh, okay, you run your state, you run your city, that's just not good. You know, the NCAA is the governing body that we need to govern. We need to tell people what to do. Um, I think that the good that's going to come out of this is that I think that it's going to show people that they're that we've been very wasteful in athletics in, in, in this country. You know, we, you know, the the big structures that are irrelevant once you open the doors anyway, they're obsolete because somebody's building something bigger and better that's going to open up a week later. Um, I, I think that you know we have positions and. There's a lot of things that are going to come to light here that we just been wasteful that we didn't have to do. Um, I also think that if something good that's come out of it for me is it's given me time to kind of clear my head, clear space to see where I can get better, you know, where I can help myself get better, help my staff get better, help my team get better. And it's overall how, what I can do for Florida track and field across country to make us better as a whole, because I've had time now. My vision's clear now to see some of the stuff that was cluttering up my world, you know. And I think the absolute ugly of this, what's going to, going to happen now is because of the uncertainty, because of it, the inability to make decisions. Things are going to get ugly, you know, cutting the programs, you know, people's salaries getting cut, people being, you know, furloughed that's the ugly side of all this right now. And I don't know how it's going to get fixed until somebody in a leadership position sits down and says, this is what needs to be done and how. And that's where I am. Uh, I'll jump in there because I, I know, I, I, I've got some things to say, but I know Clyde's definitely doing the Birdman hand rub for this <laughs> one. So um, I'm going to get in and get out. Uh, I'll just say that I'll go in reverse order because I'm, I'm feeling relatively positive today, hence the ironic. Um, I think the ugly side to all of this is we found out that the world of athletics is expendable. And I think that's a harsh reality for all of us because we all live in, make our livelihoods from the world of athletics. But we have found out that this country can and will move forward without us and that's an ugly thought like i don't think any of us want to live in a world where there's no athletics but we just have done that for the better part of three months and it's scary to realize that you know reruns and and already played games are still very popular and people will watch that they don't necessarily need us to produce new content um the bad side um Lucius spoke to it already. 
there's a there's a dearth of leadership in in every sport. Um, I think that that most people in baseball think that Rob Manfred is borderline idiotic. I think that most people in the NCAA have now come to the realization that the NCAA is a collective. It's not a leadership leadership uh, ground at all. I mean, we have schools that are in the same division, um, in the same level. So your Division One schools that are trying to move spring, I mean, fall sports to spring. You have others that are going at you know world according to normal. We have others that are deciding whether they are or aren't going to bring kids back like there's like 16 different things that I've seen that schools are doing which shouldn't be if we're all in one we're being governed by the same supposedly by the same organization so I, I think that that's very bad and probably going to get worse if we're going to be honest um, because they, they just there's no accountability there and there never has been and now there's a gigantic bright light shown upon that um, and I'll just say that that the good has has been like um, the country's doing a lot better job of not being couch potatoes, uh, myself included. Um, probably ninety six or ninety seven percent of the days since March fifteenth, I've done at least an hour of some sort of exercise. And while that exercise is happening, I'm like, if I sit in my living room, I can watch probably a thousand people walk by my front window that never walked by my front window before. And they're skateboarding, walking, jogging, all these things. I see lots of couples walking, which never happened before. Um, grass, the grass looks immaculate around everyone's neighborhood. So I think the world itself, just you know, the marble, is probably better off, to be honest. Uh, the animals are doing better. The uh, uh, what's the word? The the ozone is doing much better, and I think we as human beings are probably healthier. As crazy as that sounds, I think those those of us who have not been struck directly by the pandemic have realized the importance of being healthy. So that that has definitely been the good, in my opinion. Uh, this question, the, the the only appropriate word to describe this overall question is nuance. There's a, there's a lot of nuance and layers to, to every aspect of this question. Good, bad, and ugly is, is a reaction to where you're sitting amongst this role. So it, it, it's, hard, it's, it's hard to answer because there's a lot of insensitivity that can, that can come across given where you happen to be sitting amongst all of this. Uh, for me, the things that I've taken away when I see the effects on the pandemic is having and will have on on the college sports arena, it, it's a lot. I mean, I, I agree with, with what my colleague said here. Uh, it has definitely exposed a lot of things. Um, it's exposed a lot of lack of leadership and in some cases has exposed who our better leaders are. Um, the NCAA as a, as a whole, I would absolutely agree, is doing everything they can not to be leaders. They're doing everything they can to push away responsibility and push away having to make real decisions so that no one can come back to them and hold them accountable for the decisions that they make. And that is very much how the federal government is handling um, this issue. So hilarious. 
um, but not, not, you know, not nearly in, in the sense of actually being funny, tragically hilarious. Um, I, I think the, the ugly parts of all of this uh, are, the, are the lives that are ultimately gonna be negatively impacted are the, the people who have lost their jobs. Um, are, are, the, are, the, are the families who's had, you know, food taken off their tables and may never come back because of it. Um, and that's, that is, that is tragic. And that is definitely uh, a very real uh, display of what Lamar pointed out, that we have all learned that the one thing college athletics is not, we are not essential. We may be essential for entertainment, but we are absolutely not essential to the, the livelihood of America. We make people feel good. We, give, we grant a lot of opportunities. Um, and in some, in some cases, you know, I'm, I'm a person whose life was ever changed and maybe saved through, through the scope of athletics and having an opportunity to go through college athletics. But I probably could have and should have taken more of an account of other avenues I could have had if I didn't have that in front of me. And so, you know, for me, with the fact that we aren't essential has has pulled the mask off and made a lot of people really uncomfortable. The other thing that I think uh, this pandemic has exposed is much like Wall Street in 2008, it's not a good idea for certain things to be too big to fail. And football has grown to a place where everybody's treating football like it's too big to fail. And you know, that's not good. That's not healthy. That does not produce uh, stability for all. That might produce stability for football. Our country, our industry's um, dependence on the wins and losses, ups or downs, money or no money that comes from football is a bad business model that needs correction. What that correction is, I don't know. No one pays me enough to figure that stuff out. But it's something that absolutely needs to be addressed. And if people don't start to address it, football will ultimately be the poison pill that destroys all of college athletics. Because right now, it's the thing that's propping everything up. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it shouldn't be the model. So the, the good of it, um, I agree. It, it's given a lot of people to uh, it's given a lot of people time to take take a step back, slow down, clear your head, like Lucia said. Get get your other projects moving. LLC doesn't happen if the pandemic doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things that people are passionate about. There's a lot of things that, that people have desires to pull off. That this has given us the time and opportunity to pursue. You know, I, I'm going back to school. That probably doesn't happen if I'm in the rips and runs of of normal business. You know, so there's there, it's giving people time, space, and opportunity to kind of take stock of what their life really looks like and what is essential to them and what is most important to them. Get your priorities in mind. You know, re-educate yourself, connect with your families, connect with your colleagues, grow, learn. Those are the good. Um, the and I covered the ugly, the the bad of it, like I said, it's just it's just how not not essential any of this is. And, and I hope that we emerge from all of this on a better path, a more, a more righteous path, a, a path of smarter business practices. 
this thing has damn sure exposed a lot of waste, not just in our world, but in our all world. Zoom has exposed how much money we waste doing unnecessary nonsense. Amen. There's a whole lot of businesses in the San Francisco Bay Area that are probably like, do I really need to pay all this rent for this office space? We've clearly been getting our job done without it. Like, and, and what's to be done with that? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't have so much homelessness if you repurpose some of these places for things like that. Like, there's so many angles you could take with all of this. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely not happy about the hundreds of thousands of people's lives who have been snatched by this and the lack of leadership that has led to so much dystopian destruction. It didn't have to be this way. But it, it has given people the time, space, and opportunity to think. And for me, the biggest good that's coming out of all of this is the world being put on pause has given the space for everybody to really understand the depths of social injustice and racism. I don't think George Floyd's death, murder, gets the attention it's been getting if everybody wasn't sitting at home with nothing to do. So I think there's a lot of paying attention that's going on and a lot of things that needed to come to the forefront have been happening because we have the time to consider things. Um, I totally agree um, about the George Floyd situation. If we're, if we're at a sense of normalcy in America, um, there's a day or two of loud noise and then it just goes away like it always does. Um, I, I hear you when you say that uh, football is maybe too big, but um, it's to the point now there's, I don't think there's any turning back because if you turn back on football, then all the minor sports are going to suffer and they're going to go away. So be careful with that wish, please, because I'm a minor sport. <laughs> um, and I think so, I'm, you know, I, I don't mind stirring the pot every now and then. So I'm, I'm going to pretend I'm, I'm the NCAA president. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let everybody know this week and I'm going to make a big announcement next week. And I'm going to come out next, middle of next week and I'm going to say, look, guys, this is how this is going to work. There's only going to be two fall sports played this year. We're going to play football. We're going to play basketball. We're going to start football in November and play football from November to February. We're going to start basketball either late December or January. Everybody else is going to get the pause button for a year. That gives everybody a chance to heal, to plan, to get their feet grounded and get, get started on a path back to some sense of normalcy. And I think that if somebody, and I'm not saying that's the right plan, but that if I'm the NCAA president and I put that plan out there, because let's be realistic, if we don't want more jobs lost and programs cut, we need to play football and basketball. Okay? So let's find a way to do that. Let's find a way to do it safely. Let's hopefully there's a vaccine in place by the time those things are about to happen. And then we can move forward. But if you don't do something and everybody's trying to do something different, there's always going to be a problem. I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with the premise of, of that idea. But I think we all agreed that we would appreciate Right or wrong, we would appreciate the NCAA doing their job as a governing body, stepping out, making a decision, and living with the choices that they make. Now, me personally, I don't have an issue with pushing 
all the fall sport, all the fall sports to the spring and figuring out a way to work it out if things get better. I don't have a problem with that. The the and I totally understand the financial reality of what if football doesn't get played. My problem with the go ahead and play the games is there's it is the one game that we have that is the absolute most dangerous to play amidst the pandemic. And it's the one sport we have that makes the least amount of sense to try to play in the middle of a pandemic. I think rest, I think holding our hopes over a vaccine, a normal vaccine protocol is four to five years. A fast one would be two and a half years. We're banking on warp speed vaccines. And I got to tell you, if the warp speed vaccine is coming out of America under this leadership, you couldn't pay me to take it. No, no see, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to turn this into a government discussion. No, but, but no. It wasn't my purpose. I'm not going to No, I understand that. But, but it's off to the left wing somewhere. Look, I, all I'm saying is this. We'll leave it at this. If somebody needs to make a decision, I just put that out there because, okay, this is not about whether we have this magical vaccine or not. If it's not play, then if it's not if it's not safe to play in November, then we don't play in November. Okay, so that, that's so, that's so, all, so all I'm saying. So all I'm saying is, and I said, provided we have structure in place. So well, all the other stuff there, I, okay. So wait, that but that's my that's question. That's what this shows about. But but that's my question. So so the alternative that I would have to that is, what is wrong with the idea of taking the most dangerous sports, pandemic wise? football and pushing that to the spring and letting the other sports that can function obviously more safely like a cross country a soccer i don't know when they play field hockey but field hockey like whatever they are like what's wrong with letting the smaller sports that can play more if you're the nca president then that's your plan if okay. i'm the nca president my plan is to play football in november sometime basketball in December or January. That's my plan. I okay. think Can I ask you a question about the football? Yeah. Right now, uh, I think I'm going to get this right, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, the, the money conferences, have decided to play conference-only games. The mm -hmm. ACC and the SEC have not made that choice yet, and I have no idea what the Big 12 has said. So mm -hmm. are you pro-conference-only schedule, or are you pro-play them all? Um, I, I think in this case, I have no problem with the conference only schedule because I'm, I'm not a proponent of all the, of all the weak sisters of the poor getting beat up on to get paid anyway. You know, so I'm, I mean, that, so that was never, you know, like, so I'm going to go play somebody so I can have a better chance of making the playoff. We do not going to start that discussion. <laughs> you oh, behave oh, yourself. I, We're not starting that crap today. Please, I Lamar, take over this because he's about to get started. <laughs> We're not doing that today. The, the no, SEC about to play more conference games. Hey. They might <laughs> Yeah, we're still the best football conference. Island. Anyway, I want to jump in as commissioner for a day, and I will say, for me, um, I'm moving all fall sports to the spring, and I'm moving all spring sports to the summer. And that buys me time. It buys me time to figure out what is actually going on. It is the least uh, disruptive to the student body because literally we just move everybody back one season, but you can still have the season if it's safe and that gives me time to first of all figure out the protocols for unified bringing back of students 
to campus or whether that's not gonna happen. But it's gonna have to happen the same way everywhere, in my opinion, if we're talking about playing sports. So the first thing from my perspective is to put sports in perspective, which is nobody's playing any damn games in the fall because we don't know enough yet. So I move all fall sports to the spring semester. I move the spring sports to the summer semester, which isn't gonna hurt any spring sport except having to deal with uh, Olympic trials type things. That That's minutia and that's easily fixed or dealt with. But at the end of the day, I think if I'm commissioner for a day, that's the first thing I do, which is put the school portion and the human health portion in the forefront and we deal with that in the fall and not have not one person ask me what, whether the SEC, SEC should play football or whether the Pac-12 shouldn't or whatever that is like nah ain't nobody playing football or soccer or lacrosse or anything else because I'm not running kids out there as guinea pigs like give me through January to figure out what we can and cannot do so I can make educated and mitigated risk conversations public and be unified. Because the biggest thing I think all of us agree is the NCAA has failed to be unified in any fashion at all. That's right. And that's, and that's my soapbox. I am now off of it. No, Lamar, I, I appreciate that. And that's very well stated. And, and I want to I want to clarify two things because everybody accuses me of being the anti-football guy. I'm not anti-football. I'm a football fan. I like football. Played it, coached it for a hot second. I like football. I'm a fan of football. I want to, on the football side, I want to shout out the SWAC, my former conference. I want to shout out the SWAC for having the foresight to be the first Division One conference to move to the spring. They did that on its own. I thought that was great. I think it's important. I know it's a small conference, and a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to it. But in a, in, a, in a moment where everybody's trying to, you know, tiptoe around a leadership decision, I appreciate the SWAC stepping out there and doing that. So props to the SWAC. And I want to be very, very, very clear because I realized something I said could come off a different way. I am not anti-vaccine. I am pro-vaccine. I am, I am pro-vaccine. Everybody should get their vaccines when a safe one is available. I want to be clear on that. <laughs> Heard. Big league takeover. And I, and I want to be clear that I do not want people playing if it's not safe. My plan is continued on there being a vaccine, continue on it being safe to play. The biggest thing is from my from where I sit, if I'm the commissioner, if I'm the leader, is that I know that's what everybody wants to do. Right? Everybody wants to play football, they want to play basketball. So I'm gonna give you those caveats provided it's safe to do so. And that gives me, gives us more time to prepare. It gives us more time to, as Lamar said, get more information and figure out if it's safe to do. Um, my reason for not playing the other sports is because at some point in time, this is gonna get clustered and it's just gonna be too much going on. So you're gonna, some, somebody's gonna have to you know, I like, I'm not so sure we run indoor track this year. To that point, I was, I, I was going to ask you guys that, at Lucius, after you gave your, your hypothetical shift. 
regardless of if a shift like that happens or not, I think you know, our, our sport is governed, you know, we have three segments to it. Obviously, we have cross, indoor, and outdoor. I'm of the opinion that it's highly likely that we don't have an indoor track season at all. I think outdoor is, you know, doable, and I think cross is doable, but I'm not sure if they're prepared to do cross in the fall. So would you move cross to the spring and say January, February, we're doing cross, skip indoor, and then roll into outdoor? Or I think you try to squeeze you, them all in? If you started cross country in January and ended it in mid-March and then started outdoor track at the end of March, which is typically whenever most people start anyway. Or if you in, okay, if you if you had cross country start the first weekend in January and then the first weekend in March, and you tell nobody you can't run any outdoor track meets until the week after the NCAA cross country was over. At least you got seven days where you can do anything. Now you're gonna have some distance coaches. Well, that's not fair. Those are the same guys that run up to Boston and qualify in the 5K right after the cross country season, right? Same people. So they're going to go do that. So they'll just go wherever they're going to go and get qualified for the five and the 10 for the NCAA. Region. You know? So like, I, I totally agree. If you're trying it from a safety standpoint, absolutely. You run cross country in the winter or from started in um, January or so. And you, you don't do indoor and you, and you come back and do outdoors. Yeah. I, like, I literally think that's a common sense approach to this. Mm -hmm. But, but that's, how do we run cross country in January to March in the Midwest? That's snow season. Like Say again. In January through March, we're still in snow in the Midwest. So they run we... outside. They know the deal. Yeah. I just I had to throw it out there. I mean, I, yeah. I think I've seen. Man, no, let's, let's be realistic, okay? So I, I I I've said this in some meetings, and people think I'm being a jerk. Um, if you want to get better at anything, you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? There's a pandemic going on, it's killing people. Yeah. So then your choice is if you don't wanna be cold and maybe have to travel just a little bit to the South during that time of year to run your cross country beach, then let's just not have a cross country season. Facts. This is just that simple. Okay, and so. Everybody who, everybody who would complain about, you know, what my- So let's figure out a way, instead of saying, oh my God, it's not fair, so-and-so doesn't have two feet of snow today. Well, if it's indoor track season, it's you have two feet of snow when you go out for your long run. You ain't doing your long run inside. Yeah, and if you're doing your long run in the ultra G during that time of year, then still do it on the ultra G. You know, I mean, if, if those who want to get it done will find a way. But if we're talking about the safety of these student athletes, we have to move stuff to places where it's safe and we have time. I don't think anybody feels comfortable with a football game starting six weeks from now. Uh, and, and that's that's my whole point about moving all the fall sports to the spring because look, the kids who get most exploited right now are the football players already, right? The most money is made off of their backs. So why should they also be the guinea pigs? Like I, there should be no sports played in the fall. And football players are not expendable just because their universities depend on them to play. That's, excuse my language, bullshit. Nobody's child should be an experiment for a university that has not been fiduciarily sound, so they need to play football. 
move the football and all sports seasons into the spring, move the spring sports into the summer, and that is the only safe, theoretically, because it's still theoretically, that is only safe option that's available. But this thought process that, you know, the magic wand is going to be waved and football's just going to be okay is insane. I, I would, I, if I could stand up on camera and applaud Lamar, I would, but then I would be out of frame. So I'm going to give you a sitting round of applause for that, sir, while also pointing out this is episode, what, 15 of LLC, too? 16. I would like the audience to go back and watch episode one and realize that Lamar has come around 16 weeks later to Clyde's point of view on football and the fall. Okay, see, I, so, I, see I'm going to defend, I'm I'm defend Lamar because I don't think Lamar ever said that it was safe to play football back then. No, he no. Just, hold, 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 hold on a second. He just believed that they would. Okay. I still do. That's exactly. So, so, so yeah, so look, so for the record, if, and, and we can go back, as you say, check the tape. And if the, check is, if the tape is checked and it, and it appears that Lamar and I were saying that it would be okay to play football or safe to play football, I don't think either one of us ever felt that way. I know I didn't. I know he didn't either. But because, because, of, because of the country that we live in, okay, there is still the possibility that in six weeks there's going to be a football. There's a possibility. So yeah. before, you, before you stand up and start clapping, you wait for six weeks. <laughs> Oh, or seven or eight. Because I, I'm, look, not saying, look, I'm not saying I'm not saying understand this. We are both on the same side with you and have been from day one. No doubt. Safety is first. But see, because we're a little longer in the tooth than you are, okay? We know how this crap works. Right. At the end of the day, okay, look, this country is open now because of money. Yeah. Okay, and if you don't think there's somebody somewhere doing everything they can to ensure that if nothing else, the autonomy five plays football this fall, okay, just, just you know, we, we know that, so, we know so that you, don't, you don't have to stand up and clap because we've been on your side on that the whole time. We've been just trying to let you know that this is a decision that is way above our pay grades, and there's yeah. somebody out there that wants to play football in six weeks. We, but I do appreciate the sitting, the, the sitting ovation. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a stand ovation because that was very well said. You know, very I, well because said. because you didn't have a jar tonight. You know, I think you did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you said you couldn't have a jar and a U shirt on at the same time. That would have been bad. I mean, that would have actually been ironic. I'm gonna say exactly. Fall. That's my point. <laughs> that would have been very ironic. I mean, <laughs> for, the, for the record, the fact that I'm wearing this shirt is ironic. But yeah, well, see, like, so, 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 Clyde. Yes, so, sir. If, if I ever gave you the impression that I thought it was going to be safe to play football this fall, shame on me. No, 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 no. <laughs> shame that on me. Not, because that's that not what I was saying. Right. Okay. Not, I just want to make I, sure because, yeah, because we have always been on your side on that. No, no, not, not on that. What I was saying was my original stance on all of this is that one, yes, it would be irresponsible, but I have always maintained that at some point, enough people would realize how irresponsible it is 
and business as usual for fall football was never going to happen. And on that, I've already been proven right with two of the power five saying, actually, we're not doing business as usual. We're going conference only. And that's just to buy time to give us. Well, see, I, and again, see, I, I, don't, I don't know about the business as usual term because I don't. All I know, like, I, all I know is like, I was like, they're going to play football. I do. I remember saying that. Well, they're already playing less football in some D1 conversation. But that wasn't part of the conversation. And, and look, I hope you're right. I hope we find a way to make this right without putting these young people in jeopardy. That's my, that's my. Yeah, we're, because, we all, because we all, I, all. I can tell you because I've gotten some information, the protocols that they are putting forth to try to play football, look, they're, try, they're trying to play. Oh, I'm kidding. We know. I, I like very like, and, and, and here's the thing: the money that it's going to cost to play football is, 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 is interesting. But again, I'm just telling you. Just telling you, you're not the commissioner. Ironic, so this is one of those things that that has happened that the general public doesn't understand. That the the autonomous five are so hell bent on playing football because they need to, to, to get the TV dollars, which I get, but they're so hell-bent on playing football that they are causing damage to non-Power 5 schools that, they are, that is completely unintended, and the rest of the public doesn't get this. All of those games that have now been eliminated as non-conference games, those are institution-saving games for those smaller schools. Yeah. And so what is now happening is you're asking a young man who plays football at the University of Florida, he used to be not only putting money in Florida's pocket, but he was also putting money in South Florida's pocket because South Florida was getting a million dollars to get curb stumped by the University of Florida in an off week. But now that those games aren't happening, that's a million dollars that is not gonna be in the University of South Florida. I'm making this up, people, don't at me. It's a million dollars that will not be in the University of South Florida's coffers. And I know for a fact that there's a school that was affected by the Big Ten's decision that lost a $600,000 guarantee that they had already spent. So now there's a $600,000 shortfall at that school, which is going to mean that some program is going to get cut and some people are going to lose their jobs. Yes. And to Clyde's original point, football has gotten to the point where it can't fail at the autonomous fives. And it has taken a whole lot of other things down with it. And that's unfortunate. That is really unfortunate. We have allowed anything in collegiate athletics to grow to that point. It is, well, it is. and that's why I use the that's why I use the 2008 housing bubble example because that is exactly what this is. And it's a it's a great example, but unfortunately, guys, it's not changing. Oh, it's going to happen. Look, I, I'm going to say so, this. And so, I, this you you have to understand. You know, look, look look at it like like from a mob perspective. Okay. If you're in the mob, you protect your biggest moneymaker, right? That's the biggest moneymaker. It's going to be protected. It's going to be fought for. It's going to be played at a high level 
at some point. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not voting for six weeks, so don't, don't say mouse it, play football in six weeks, I didn't say that. Okay? I'm just saying that the people, the powers that be, wanted to have. And we'll just leave it at that for today. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Yep. Well, let's go ahead and close that section out. Um, let's wrap up the show today with our eight talks. Um, you know, if you didn't tune in last week, we installed a little segment where we want to give, as it was graciously said, our roses to those who deserve them while they're still around. Um, so that sounded insensitive. While they're still here with us, my apologies. <laughs> that was horrible. Um, so, uh, Lamar, why don't you go ahead and start us off? Uh, it's, it's my honor. Um, my, my heartbeat props goes to uh, a gentleman who's unfortunately been in the news here lately, not, not of his doing, but um, George Williams is an incredible human being, and I think we, we all would agree to that. But, but what George probably doesn't even know is, is from my perspective, like he's the first person that ever made me believe that I was doing the right thing by being a coach and made me do made me believe that it was a good thing that I was doing it but I think beyond all that he's the first person that actually helped me achieve buy-in from from student athletes and honestly probably before I deserved it you know George has been at St. Aug for ever and my first co- collegiate coaching job was at Wake Forest and we share state obviously and we were at one of the first meets I was ever at with, with my team, my, my group of athletes. And, you know, George kind of like sat my kids down and told them like, Hey, do you know who you're blessed enough to have as your coach? You need to listen to him. And if you do your life will be been said all these wonderful glowing things that I thought, man, I should be coached by that guy. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, like, look, George has been an inspiration to me from afar and from near more than half of my life. Like, I remember being in high school, like, George has made St. Aug such a big deal that I remember being in high school thinking, man, I really will have reached it if I get good enough that I could be recruited by St. Aug. Like, I didn't even know that St. Aug was a Division II school. Because everybody I knew that went there, like, they were, like, like I saw them in track and field news, right? So, like, if you were a stud athlete, you went to St. Aug. Like that happened. And so like I remember thinking to myself vividly, like, it would be awesome if I was good enough in high school to be recruited by St. Aug. So uh props and love to uh to my man George Williams. Uh for me, uh my person this week will probably be something someone that a lot of people in our community of track and field athletics probably won't know. Um, and that is my club coach, Alonzo Carter, or as he would call himself, and righteously so, the real Coach Carter. Um, Alonzo Carter is currently the running backs coach at San Jose State University here in the Bay Area. Um, but when I first met Zoe, he was the football coach at McClymans High School and also uh, ran what we call the AC Track Club, which was the Alameda Contra Costa County Track Club. And if you are a fan of club track, you go look at uh, the run that we had in the late 90s with the AC Track Club 
we reset records, we demolished people all across the country. And that was Zoe's project and brainchild. Um, I grew up in the Bay. My mother's moved 30 times in her life. I'm turning 40 next year. Okay. So we lived in a lot of different areas of the Bay, but I mostly grew up in and around Richmond, California. And Zoe is from West Oakland. Zoe is a uh, former MC Hammer dancer when Hammer was running the globe, okay, who turned, who decided to get into coaching after that whole thing was over. And Alonzo Carter put more kids into Division One during his time at McClymonds High School than the, than the infamous De La Salle High School did, okay. Zoe is a legend in the Bay, and what makes Zoe so important is the fact that he always cared about the school part of it first. The only reason I was able to get a full scholarship to UCLA out of high school is because Zoe got a hold of my transcript after my 10th grade year and looked at it and was like, dude, none of these classes that you're taking are gonna get you eligible for college. I'm like, coach, I got my GPA. He's like, I don't give a damn about your GPA. You in the wrong classes. None of this is 48H compliable. None of this is UC system compliable. These people are leading you astray. And so at the end of the day, I ended up leaving my mother's home, moving to Oakland, California, living in this man's house. Like we did everything he needed to do for me to make sure that my grades were straight and that I was able to capitalize on my talent. And he did that for so many kids. And he saved a lot of lives and gave people a lot of opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise. And it's amazing that just now, because of the pandemic, because of freaking Zoom calls, that he is just now getting the attention and respect that he deserves. He's been featured on ESPN multiple times in the last couple of weeks uh, through, a, through a black coaches Zoom meeting that he originally set up much, much on a much smaller scale, but exactly the same way that you set up the, the coaches collab. It's just, you know, it's football. So a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to that. He's got a documentary coming out on him shortly that, that's being promoted into the Sundance Film Festival. I was lucky enough to, to get interviewed for, and I owe that man everything. So Zoe, the real Coach Carter, Lonzo Carter, San Jose State, I love you, and I appreciate you. Good job. Um, my, my heartbeat props, I'm going to give up to a uh, man that um, just absolutely changed my life and is still a great part of my life today. Um, he was my high school sprint coach, Ed Snow. Um, Ed is, uh, he's my, he's my coach. He's my mentor, my dad. He's just been there. Um, I go back to my junior year in high school and the head coach says, Hey, we got a new sprint coach. And, um, he's, he's going to work with you guys and we want you to work out with him. So you know, we walk in and there's this skinny white kept guy. He's got this really long hair and we're inside. He's got shades on. And he looks at us and he says, if you guys can keep up with me, you're fast. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll take the challenge. You know, 45 minutes later, we've all been whipped. <laughs> and uh, uh, that was just the beginning of the many lessons he's taught me in life. Um, I can't think of an important moment in my life since that day that he hasn't been there for me. Much like Clyde talked about, you know, he taught me the importance of education. I didn't catch on as quickly as he wanted me to, but I, I did catch on. And I just want to thank Ed for always being there for me and 
helping me become the man that I am. And I hope that I've made him proud along the way. So thank you so much, Ed Stone. That's awesome. Um, mine this week is, and I'm sure almost every jump coach has this thought, if not said about that as well, um, is Jeremy Fisher. Um, having attended level two with him, he just, he made me fall in love with jumps specifically, but even just coaching, even more than I thought I was already. I thought I was in love and infatuated with what I was. He made me love it. Um, I've done a horrible, horrible self-admission job of, of being a mentee and, and contacting and keeping in contact with. But what makes him stand out so much is when we do have the opportunity to reconnect, it's, it's genuine and it's um, a connection of us not skipping a And, you know, whether that's organic to us, I don't know. I have no clue, but I have a feeling he's, he's like that with everyone because he genuinely cares about everyone. And that's, that's, you know, something that I strive to be within myself as I coach going forward. And, um, you know, having the opportunity to a level two jumps here next week, you know, I hope to have that same impact that he has for me. And so for that, you know, I appreciate everything that he does for the sport as well as for me just as a coach and developing into who I So thank you very much, sir. But this out, now we're all on our heels and we feel better about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, great show, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Um, I do have to give a special shout out to Grace and Cynthia of Monique State. Monique State. Um, if you're watching, give a little smile and uh, I'll see it. But um, other than that, gentlemen, have a great day. Have a great evening. We'll see each other soon and um, with more topics this year and earth shattering comments and our own two cents to contribute to this change shortage in the world. Have a great Shout day. out to my man, Rob Jarvis. Good <laughs> day. Later. When the lights come on, the road skip to running. When the lights come on, the opponents smash the plumbing. Would you like it warm, hot, knife the butter? Two pin them hard, knock them off that rebuttal. Tsunami, tidal wave to your puddle. Tough love, punch you in the arms, little brothers. Athletics double, I'll see it, there's no others. Track and field's pace, and we'll peel to go further. Coyotes, Roadrunners Feels like you know us, you've been with us the whole summer If not for this quarantine, these four corners Wouldn't be here, but we're here, so start learning You gotta earn your stripes, gotta get your scars Show you how to fight, but show us who you are You lack experience, but still you wanna talk And who is actually talking to your circle's kinda small Heads prevail when the backbone's strong Gotta keep it coming, no, it won't last long Pass and fail, then sell the sad song And if you don't check yourself, then that's wrong Just trying to give you the real that you asked for So why you keep cutting us off to ask more? We put it in slow-mo, but you fast forward Athletics, double LC, the task force Well, that's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on iTunes and hit that subscribe button. As well, we encourage you to connect with others and share the podcast on your social media. Looking forward to next time when we connect you with another great track and field connection. Bye, guys.